0: Why do you want to fight? This is The Fight Game
1: with Demond Cotton.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. I'm your host, Damond Cotton, and I say it each and every week, but there is so much to talk about in the world of combat sports. Let me just tell you the guests that we have lined up for you today here on The Fight Game. And Coming up in a matter of minutes, actually, Tony Colatiude from the Levitard and Friends Network, he's going to be joining the show, went down to Miami for UFC 287. So it's going to be fun to talk to someone, a native Miamian, who can give me the lay of the land and tell me just how monumental it was for the UFC to be back in Miami. And then after that, we're going to be talking to John McClain around 1230 The general, the illustrious John McClain going to be joining me on the show. He has a bone to pick with me from Unnecessary Roughness on Radio Nation Radio. He joins us each and every week. I didn't know that John had a bone to pick with me. He's been wanting to come on the fight game. So with that, come on, I can't deny the general. John McClain wants to come on your show. You book him on the show. So I told him, I texted him, give me a top five list of your top five fights in sports. I don't care if it's boxing. I don't care if it's benches being cleared. So we're going to see what John's top five list is when it comes to fights in sports. So that's going to be interesting because who doesn't love a good fight? I'm I'm hoping that it's not actually maybe professional fights that he's been at and he just gives me some stories about, yeah, back in 1985, I saw this fight on the Oilers bench. I hope it's more of those type of stories from John. And then we're going to close out the show with Hurricane Shane Burgos as he's going to be making his PFL debut this Friday at the Virgin Theaters. Love that venue right here in Vegas. So that's going to be exciting. Talk to him as he's making the move up to lightweight from featherweight and his debut since he's jumped over from the UFC. Talk to him about all that and more. So now, let's ring the bell and recap UFC 287. Let's get it on! Nothing but illustrious guests here on The Fight Game, and I'm pleased to introduce my next guest, Tony Colladiude from the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts, the Levitard and Friends Network, the Rear Naked Choke Substack. Hey man, thank you for joining me on on The Fight Game.
1: Uh, it's all good. Good. Um, excited to be here. Plus the MMA hangout. Don't forget that we have oh, yeah, a MMA watch party hangout. on the Levitard Show YouTube page uh, where we watch all the pay-per-view fights. But no, man, it's good to be on. Um, Man, I'm I'm still buzzing from from the other night from 287. It was insane.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and jump into a UFC 287 in Miami, the Kaseya Center. Got to get used to that. I've got to ask you because this is something I was joking about it with a couple of guys on the UFC PR team. You know, it's around 7 o'clock. I'm down there in the media room and I'm like, When's everybody going to start showing up? Is that a normal Miami thing for events? I know the main card didn't start until 10, but it was still 7, 30, 8 o'clock, and I'm
1: like, "Are did people forget what day the fight was? <laughs> That's the thing about Miami. We're a very late-arriving arri- crowd, right? So that was one of the things during the Big 3 where you would have these huge games where LeBron, D-Way, Bosh, everybody would be in, and the game starts at 7, 30, and nobody would be there until the start of the second quarter. Miami's just a late-arriving crowd. It's a very uh, – it's like, "Oh, the cool people get to the party a little bit late. That's how Miami does." So, yeah, I was I wasn't surprised to know that 10, like right when the right when the uh the Kevin Gastelum and Chris Curtis fight was ending was the time that it started getting packed. I was like, "All right, yeah, that feels about right."
0: Yeah, and then something else about the Miami crowd that I've got to ask about because me being a skeptic of, "Hey, man, the crowd's not showing up." What was the buzz like for the city leading up to the card of, "Hey, the UFC's back in town."
1: Buzz is crazy, man. Miami is just such a different place because there's so many things you could do. There's so many subsections and areas of the city that have its own vibe, right? But um, when you're talking about downtown, when you're talking about the AAA or Kaseya Center, I I still call it the AAA. It's just inbred in me. Um, American American Airlines Arena, for those that don't know. Um, When you're talking about stuff that happens there, uh, the buzz is usually normal. But for 287, I felt like there was a heat in the city. Um, people were talking about it. Obviously, I'm I'm huge into the UFC, and and some of my people are too. So it was all we kind of were talking about. But man, it was that whole week leading up to it with the weigh-ins, and the press conferences, and everything. The buzz was just building. The place was crazy. I mean, I'm I'm so happy for Miami because we really showed out. Like I know the I know Dana was talking about the last time they came 20 years ago it was 2003 or whenever that would have been. Did like 450 thousand on the gate. Miami just wasn't that kind of city. I think the UFC, mixed martial arts in general, has taken such a big explosive rise that people were, were coming, even if they didn't care about the fights. Obviously, George made it a, a big a big showing for Miami, but even if George wouldn't have been there, Miami's a place that if there's an event, you want to be seen there. Right, so all the people that came out, even if you don't like UFC or don't like mixed martial arts or whatever, like they came out there just to be seen. You saw, I mean, there was fifty, sixty, seventy different celebrities on the floor. Yeah, like the place was crazy.
0: All right, so let's go ahead and jump into that main. I want to start right with the main event: Alex Pereira defending his middleweight title against Israel Adesanya. What did you think going in? Because to me, I wanted to root for Izzy. I love rooting for Izzy, but yes. it was looking a little scary for him. Like I don't know if he's going to be able to get this win back.
1: So. Izzy is one of my favorite fighters. My wife is a huge Izzy fan. My wife wasn't able to go to the uh, to the actual fight, so she was watching. She's like, "You got to buy the the, the pay per view for me at home, so I can watch it at home." Her girlfriends were going out. She's like, "Nah, I'm staying home. Like, I'm watching this fight." <laughs> so she was at the house um, watching the fight. I'm a huge Izzy fan, but man, after so I was at the I was at 281 in Madison Square Garden too, and what I saw from Alex Pereira at that point was the knockout of Sean Strickland, just absolutely killing people all over the place left and right. And I was like, man, are we going to see Izzy trying to get after it and trying to go get Pereira? Or is he going to kind of sit back like he did versus Cannoneer and kind of wait for the fight to come to him, win his spots, and then get a decision? So fast forward, or you know, backtracking to 281, what, what he was able to do in that first round, if the first round was three seconds longer, I think Izzy knocks him out. Obviously, we know what happens. Round five, Pareda hits him with 17 different punches, they call the fight. Fast forward here, I was like, man, I just don't know. Once you get knocked out like that, once you get toppled from that pedestal, can you you come back and be the same? And that was my worry with Izzy. I think he's one of the most mentally strong fighters uh, that we have in this game. I think that he's such a surgeon with his striking, with his kicks, with his punches. He's so calculated. That it's like, if you leave him a window of opening, like he's gonna, he's gonna hit your button and it's gonna be out. So Pereira, on the other hand, I mean, you were there for the what for for the press conferences, you were there for the weigh-ins. Pereira's just a terminator. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. I think people in 205 have a problem on their hands because mm-hmm. he is, he is just absolutely a stone cold killer. I was like, man, I don't know how I can how I can go for, uh, root for Izzy, knowing that Pereira's just there as a I don't know, a, a statuesque, just like axe murderer. I, I don't know what else to say about Pereira. I'm, I'm so impressed <laughs> with who he is, right? I actually watched back. Did you Have you watched back the fight yet or no? Uh, no, I haven't watched it back yet. Okay, so I want you to do something. See if you can find it again. Rewatch the fight. Um, one of the things that I noticed in Stadium, and then I, I rewatched it again a couple nights ago, when Bruce Buffer comes in, Pereira's on one side, Izzy's on the other side, they're introducing him the introduce Izzy first obviously b-side Pereira doesn't move for about five minutes he's just standing there completely stoic completely not moving just staring at Izzy and then finally the, the camera pans over to him Bruce, you know Buffer starts talking about Alex but middleweight champion whatever then he finally kind of comes online but I just want you to go back and look at how still he was just looking at Izzy while he was getting introduced it was crazy the man's an insane person like I, that that fight I think is a historic fight. We'll look back on and be like, "Wow, this was something that was going to be in the UFC Hall of Fame."
0: So that first round for me, a couple of guys I'm winning the press box, like, "Hey, man, it, it looks like he's got his number. He's landing those leg kicks again. Mm-hmm. Izzy's looking a little not shocked, but you know, a, l- a little hesitant, kind of like in that first fight." So after the first round, how are you feeling about that fight?
1: I was actually I was actually happy to see that Izzy was a little bit more aggressive than he was in the first round of the prior fight in 281 um there was a couple times where i think the i think what alex tried to do was carbon copy his game plan for the 281 fight and he went into it saying a bunch of different times in the press conferences in those video packages like hey izzy hasn't developed as a fighter he's the same fighter i fought in november like we're gonna go in and do the same thing and that's what i thought was happening when they start hitting him with those leg kicks i'm like oh wow Mm -hmm. this was kind of the game plan prior to in that first fight leg kick like leg kick get that front uh foot a little bit damaged get that front leg a little bit damaged then he's gonna be have to switch stances all that i was impressed with izzy going out and getting the punches that he did landing a couple kicks here and there um i to me that was like okay izzy's on his game right now because of that aggressiveness right i thought that Pereira in the first and and i want to get your take on it too Mm -hmm. i was i was intrigued by Pereira's he was measuring izzy Right. He didn't want to throw too much at him. He didn't want to throw too many combos at him. He's like keeping his distance and trying to see how much Izzy was going to step on the gas. So it felt like Paredo was very measured to me in that first round.
0: Yeah, for me, it was almost the feeling out process or these guys, they know each other so well. But to me, I thought that Pereira he won that first round. But for me, it was establishing those low kicks. He was in it for the long haul where I think that he was like, Hey, I'm going to soften him up. I know I know how to beat this guy. He's going, I'm going to soften him up with these leg kicks in the first round, stay on him a little bit. But for me, Izzy, I had player winning that first round. It was just he, I know you said that in your mind he started, he was a little bit more aggressive. But to me, he still didn't do enough in that first round. Obviously, this was probably just a part of his game plan. But after mm-hmm. the first round, I said, hey, man, I was thinking you're going down the same road as again as the first fight, and it's going to lead to a defeat.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think the leg kicks had a, had a big thing to do with it. I mean, I know that it, people have said I don't know if Izzy's outright said like those leg kicks damaged him in that first fight like he was clearly compromised and I think he said it on some either uh post fight or yeah he said it in the uh, press conference after yeah he said at some point he's like hey my leg was completely done and that's that's something that the viewer I think doesn't understand at home the fact how much those calf kicks and those lower leg kicks affect fighters right like that to me was a, a telltale sign like, oh, wow, this is going to be not great for Izzy. I was, I was again, I didn't expect him to come out and just throw a flurry of punches just because the last fight went five rounds, right? Like, it was something where it was a long-haul fight. We might have to go into the championship rounds for this one. In no world did I envision Izzy's going to knock him out. I, I just, to me, I don't know if what your thoughts were on it. I just didn't see a world where I was like, oh, Pereira's going to get knocked out in the second round. Like, I, I just didn't see that.
0: Oh, I didn't see that happening at all. So then when the second round does come along, and Izzy, he's, he's, he's a little bit better, but Alex Padilla, where he started that, that flurry, I thought that that flurry that led to the knockout, I was thinking, oh, Padilla's got him right where he wants him. Because mm-hmm. in the post-fight press conference, Izzy, his shin, it was wrapped up. That left shin was wrapped up with ice. So I thought in the second round, oh, those leg kicks, they're starting to get to him. He's about to start slowing down.
1: The other thing too is right before so I, I rewatched it so i have it pretty fresh in my mind there's there's a killer leg kick that Pereira throws at izzy that buckles him into the cage right and at that point i had the flashback of 281 where i'm like oh my god back to the cage you have somebody that is an absolute killer when it comes to getting your back on the cage but Ada's going to knock you out like we've just seen it so many times and that's exactly how it happened in 281 so izzy hits his back to the cage an absolute crack of a leg kick to his to his calf and i'm like oh here it is he gets kind of in that fetal position takes a couple blows takes that knee and then that right hand just out of nowhere hits him right in the jaw stuns him for a second and then that knockout shot to the temple was i mean chef's kiss i The place, I don't know how, where where were you exactly when that punch landed? Like when we saw Panetta hit the ground, were you in the press box or were you down below? I was up in the press box. Okay, so we had snuck down, shout out to my boy, Sean, who is the usher in section 106. We had snuck down (laughs) and we saw it from the 106 section where I saw Izzy's back on the cage. So we're looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, this is kind of it, a knee's coming, uh, uh, some sort of punch, a body shot, something that's gonna send him out. And then that right hand crack, second right hand to the temple, bomb, and it's done. And the place went insane. The I, I've never seen a stadium that I've been in personally go up as much as that one did. And I was there for the Heat championship, the first one against the Thunder. Mm-hmm. I was there for a bunch of Big Three playoff games and Big Three championships. Obviously, the only one too, but a bunch of those huge games against the Celtics and the Pacers and that stadium was not as loud as the knockout was. It was it just goes to show you how much UFC and how much mixed martial arts is is a part of like some of the biggest things on the planet. Super cool to see.
0: Oh man, because for me uh, up in the press box, we had that moment of like, "Oh, it was the oh my god moment that everybody had because I didn't see him winning by knockout. No one saw the knockout coming. So, for me, it was one of those magical moments of He's compete he, like he's completed the fairy tale, and then after after the fight, you know, throwing, firing the three arrows at him, finding his kid in the audience, mocking him, playing dead. I mean, everything was. Yeah, this was WWE because he had it all like written out. Chael Sonnen said he went full heel after that fight. What do you think yes. about the theatrics after?
1: Oh my God, it was it was Izzy though. If you know Izzy, if you follow the sport, you know that Izzy was waiting for something like that to happen, and that's why I say that he's such he's one of the most mentally strong fighters um that the UFC has and that we've ever seen because of the fact that his belief in himself right carried him to a level that not only was he like all right not only am I gonna win but I'm gonna knock him out and then on top of that I'm gonna take his celebration and then I'm gonna find his kid who mocked me Ten years ago, or whenever it was, and then, and then I'm going to get the little kid too. So, like, all of that level of planning is incredible to 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 put in the back of your mind when you have the middleweight title fight on the line on one of the biggest stages in the UFC, right? Like that mental toughness and that strength to be like, oh, I know exactly what to do in this moment is just what to me what makes Adesanya one of the one of the be- best fighters of all time. Like, I don't think we have. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the greats in not only in middleweight but across the spectrum in the UFC and if I'm putting a top if I'm putting a top seven together I'm probably putting Izzy in that top seven all time yeah to me I, especially after this victory mm-hmm. I think that cements him as one of the greatest middleweights of all time and probably a top seven UFC fighter of all time
0: Man, you said that, and I know we got to keep going, but now I
1: just want to have a, <laughs> t- like a top ten discussion because
0: I, I I know he's been so dominant. You look at the top five; he's beaten everybody that's underneath him. Like, who is in next to fight him and Duplessis? They have the, the Battle of Africa going. So he said that, that Duplessis got even to- with
1: that, it's like, uh, okay, like yeah. he's he's going down to six, really. Like that's what we're doing now.
0: Yeah, but even that—but for me, it's like, who is there left for him to fight? Because he's cleaned out the division, so now he's got to take shots at a guy who's making it personal about being African. But that's the only selling point for the fight, is it—does Duplessis right. actually deserve it? But no, it's personal.
1: Yeah, that, that's the only thing. Duplessis doesn't, right? Like, it never never in the UFC are we going to see a guy who's 6th rank get a title shot off of, off of that fight, right? Like, off of the fight we just saw, where if Duplessis comes in and fights Pereira— potato would wipe the floor with him so i don't think he gets a title shot but i do think that something's got to happen in that middleweight division i know jan was talking about coming down and fighting izzy at 185 which i don't want we'll see see about that we'll we'll see (laughs) we'll see about that one i don't know about that but he's he's just the king of the hill right now and we could do we we should do another show we do a top 10 and we can run through all the top tens and and why I have this person, you have that person. We that's another problem we need to do.
0: All right, okay, yeah. So let's move on again. We're talking to Tony Calatude from the MMA Hangout, Rear Naked Choke Substack, and the Lebertard and Friends Network. And you can follow him at 10 Day Tony on yes, Twitter. Sir. All right, man. Gilbert Burns, Jorge Masvidal. Now I did sneak down for this fight because I wanted yeah. to feel the crowd on this one. So for me, it was Jorge. He entered first. The crowds erupted. Everybody's going crazy. But th- then it was a lackluster performance. But Talk about, for me, what does he mean to the city of Miami, Jorge Masvidal? And then did, going into the fight, did you expect him to actually get the win?
1: So I'm, I'm close with a lot of George's people. And it's, it's different when you know the people that are involved. You know the players that are involved behind the scenes and what they mean to a city. So regardless of what you think of George politically, what you think of him as a fighter, whatever those conceive, you know preconceived notions that you have of, of him are, um, what he means to Miami from a Cuban-American perspective, from a Miami perspective, um, Miami is a city that you see this flash, South Beach, you know, Wynwood, Brick, all these places where just money's all over the place and it's it's a completely different lifestyle, right? The real Miami is once you leave all that stuff, the people that are working two and three jobs to put a roof over their head to feed their kids that are coming from different countries in South America, Latin America, the Caribbean um to come over and make it in a better life than the place that they that they are leaving, right? Like that's the real Miami and that to me is what George represents more so than the king of Miami, the the bling, the the open shirts, the chains, the character, the persona that he plays, right? The thing that Colby tries to play, right? That character, that persona to me is not what George means. Uh, George means uh, somebody who came from nothing, whose parents escaped a communist regime to bring their family to a new beginning in America. Like To me, it's personal, right? Because that's my story. That's my parents' story. That's my grandparents' story. So that connection point in Miami is such a big thing. And I think that's why the UFC was like, all right, there was probably conversations about George slowing down after those three fights, two with Usman and the one with Colby. like the last fight with colby was what in march of last year so it's almost an entire year gone by since george has really done something that rises to the level of that pay-per-view status but in miami with the home crowd with out of the out of the 20,000 people that were there i'd i'd argue to say 17,000 of those people have a similar story to george right in this area in the real miami the people that come from You know, Westchester from West Kendall, from Cutler Ridge, from Perrine, from Goulds, from from Liberty City, from Opalaca, all those different places like that's such a different thing. So to me, that's what that meant. And it was cool to see Miami come together and be like, oh, this is what we do when one of our people is fighting. That support was huge. So I I was I I love to see it. The, The Scarface entrance was incredible. Like the place went insane. Like I it was it was great to see all around.
0: Yeah, it was good to see, so that's why I wanted to be down there. And you could feel that local support. But then the fight starts, and then I'm thinking – Hey, it's not looking too good for him because to me, Gilbert Burns, mm-hmm. when it comes to who deserves a title shot, he definitely deserves one above Kobe Covington. So it was one of those matchups for me where I want to see Jorge Masvidal go out on top, a true like OG in the sport. But it's man, he's going out. It, it's almost when the UFC matched up Nate Diaz against Hamza, even though that fight didn't happen.
1: <laughs> where it was like, yeah, you're not sending them out on a good note. <laughs> <laughs> they were gonna bury Nate. They were gonna bury Nate with Hamza. That would have been. That would have been. Horrible, but to get to the fight because I didn't answer your question. I was I was a blowhard about Miami. No, and that was great. And that's great. That's why that's why we got you on, baby. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, the moment this fight got announced, I was like, "Oof, this is a bad look. This is this is a bad a matchup for George." Right? Um, Gill is not the wrestler that Colby and Kamaru Usman are, but he's just an absolute bear. His hands are cinder blocks. He's great on the ground. He's great stra- standing up. Like that fight between. Gilbert Burns and Hamzat is going to be in the UFC Hall of Fame a hundred percent like that was an absolute war and George is about 35 fights you know removed from mm-hmm. that being that kind of war with him right like he said at the end when he retired hey your f- favorite hoops player loses that three point shot your favorite baseball player doesn't have that fastball anymore George was 52 fights in I think or 50 fights in or whatever it was like, it was not going to happen. I didn't. I didn't have. I didn't have the confidence to say, "Okay, George can win this if it goes to decision." I was like, "If George catches him with a right hand, that Gil, that Gil doesn't see coming, he could win by knockout." I put a couple bucks on George uh, KO uh, on the fight. But to me, there was no chance outside of a knockout that George was going to win. And when he retired at the end, I was like, "It makes sense," you know. Like, they. I don't know who. They would have offered him outside of Gilbert Burns that would have made this fight as big as it was in Miami. Um, maybe Colby again, but that would have never worked. Uh it, it just to me there was no chance where where George was gonna was gonna win outside of a knockout. I, I don't know what you thought. That was probably my my safest bet. I was like, Gil's gonna win this if he goes to the decision, George can win by knockout.
0: Yeah, I, I had Gilbert winning the entire way, but for me, yeah, it would have been the knockout. He catches him with the strike. We all know the historic four-second knockout over Ben Askren, where he's gonna have to not say a lucky shot, but it's gonna have to be something that catches Gilbert off, you know, off guard if that was gonna be the way that he wins. But I got, I mean, we've, man, these two fights, we've been talking, we've been going for about 20 minutes. So, let what'd me you get, think of the
1: lotion claim, really quick? What'd you think? Oh, man. He was, was, talking it. to George about the lotion thing. He was not happy about that. What'd you think about that?
0: So, we're, you know, we're in the press, in the, uh, in the press room after, and they're asking him about it. And some like he mentions it first. No one in the press asked him about it. So then um, he gets the follow-up question, and it's like, oh, so do you think he's greasing? And then he goes, he expounds on it, absolutely. He even goes into detail, maybe I think it was the lotion. He says these old fighters, they know all the old tricks. You get out of the shower, (laughs) and you place the lotion on as soon as you get out of the shower. And then you apply lotion every hour. So then by the time the fight starts, the lotion's a part of your skin. And by the time you sweat, you're sweating out the lotion. So he Mm -hmm. went into detail. It wasn't just like, yeah, I think he was a little slippery. The tricks of the trade. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he getting yeah, he said these old dogs know all the old tricks, and then he mentioned the trick that he thought he was using. So, and for him to walk it back, I understand that yeah, you he can't prove it. So it's like you can't be you know defamatory, you can't be deflaming people like that. Right, but, right, right. Man, he he after the fight though, when he was talking to us, he he was he was he was adamant. He knew. So for I'm, me, I don't know. I, I'm not going to say he was. He was the one that was in there, you know, holding him and fighting him. But I'll, just going off of Gilbert Burns' words, he was adamant about it
1: would would it surprise me if George did that no not at all <laughs> <laughs> not at all I mean I think I think the the biggest win and I was telling uh, a bunch of our guys here I think the biggest win for George was doing it here at home where the full circle of fighting in Perrine and Goulds in the Hoods of Miami at you know 18 19 years old 20 some odd years ago and then completing the full circle fighting at your your city's most famous arena where you're basically the headline outside of a monster title fight but that's another story for another day but but basically co-headlining the one of the biggest fights of the year at your home arena that to me was the win the second wooden was not getting knocked out because if we had a Kamar Usman situation where mm. George didn't see that right hand coming and he's flattened Tread. it would have been a different vibe but the fact that he took a ton of hits didn't fall didn't get knocked out like, that, to me, was a win.
0: All right, last fight I want to ask you about, Raul Rosas Jr. Because I was Ugh. with Chris Curtis on this one. It's like, I don't Ugh. think he deserves to be on the main card. I hate it when the UFC pushes the guys too fast. Because even to me, Joe Pfeiffer, that's a guy that I like a lot. It's like, maybe yes. he deserves to be on the main card but above Raul. Do you think that at, oh he's he's not ready yet? Because to me, Christian Rodriguez, I'm not saying that he's nothing special, but it just seemed like, guy, when you see, just in any normal situation, it looked like an 18-year-old was fighting a 25-year-old
1: yeah and and uh Lou was was with me my, my video producer here at, at uh at metal arc and i was telling him this looks like a big brother little brother fight like you're the little brother and you know that you're not going to beat me because i'm just going to sit on you i'm just going to pull you down i'm just going to make it really uncomfortable for you to fight the thing with raul rosas jr is this um has he really fought one right we could just put that aside contender series great a bunch of kind of guys right Christian Rodriguez, not that he's just a guy, but let's let's face it, like he's just a guy, right? That that fight to me shows why this is a grown man sport. This is a grown man's game, right? Jon Jones, completely different scenario, completely different person, body type, all that stuff. Obviously, youngest uh, UFC ch- uh, champion ever. But when you look at somebody like Raul Rosas Jr., you look at his size, you look at his frame, you look at his striking ability, you look at the grappling, you look at Jiu-jitsu, whatever it is that you want to point at, he's just not at an elite level, right? I think that he was very good. I think he got exposed big time. Uh, I think that his striking is subpar. I don't think that striking is there yet whatsoever. Um, to me, that was a fight that should have been on the prelims. I think Kelvin Gastelum versus Chris Curtis absolutely should have kicked off the uh the main card, like without a question, because that fight was an absolute banger, mm-hmm. right? Like Kelvin Gastelum came prepared. Like he looked like the guy that was fighting Izzy right not like the guy who had just taken what a couple of years off um I was really happy to see that but Raul Roses man it's I think uh Sugar Sean O'Malley said it too like brother you're 18 years old you need to take a couple years and just fight and just be in the octagon actually fighting people right dudes that have no name have no pedigree but that will kick your butt around the octagon and that just gets you better. Like, There's only so many guys, there's a finite amount of guys that can step into an octagon on one of the biggest stages in their sport and and compete and win and win decidingly, right? Like that. that's mm-hmm. what separates. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have that ability. I think that the UFC sees something in him and I think everybody kind of sees a little something like, oh, there's something there that he could be good, right? But it just felt like it was pushed too soon and he wasn't ready, and I think there's massive holes in his games that he needs to fix for sure.
0: All right, this is going to be the last one before I get you out of here. Chris Curtis, oh, he says right. he, he says he was robbed. Do you think he was robbed, or it's like, hey man, you, you lost. You can't blame you can't blame the judges. I mean, because every time Dana White says you can't leave it in the judges' hands, I don't think that it was that much of a robbery for him to still be griping about it days later
1: yeah and i know that they were talking about a headbutt he said a headbutt had kind of cleaned him and that he kind of came to halfway like two seconds after the headbutt i don't i don't remember seeing the headbutt or it being flagrant enough for me to be like oh damn like that was definitely not right um i think it was just a banger fight i think it was just two guys that knew what the mission was hey we're gonna stand up and we're just gonna bang on each other and that's that's the plan and i think kelvin just had a better game plan going in i think he was I think he landed better shots um when it comes to decision man they were so close but there was more and and this fight I was also uh on section 106 for the way in which Kelvin Gastelum was hitting Chris Curtis felt violent I don't know if you were up top for that one or you had come down at that point but like Kelvin was hitting him with absolute haymakers and just shots that that hurt you know what I mean and I never Mm -hmm. felt Curtis hit him. He hit him maybe a couple times with some that were there were some stunners. But I thought that Kelvin fought a better fight. And that's why they gave him the decision. It's just it's it's surprising to see Kelvin after a couple years layoff, uh, stepping into that stage and doing what he did against a guy who's who's really talented. Like, I really like Chris Curtis. Um, I just think Kelvin was better uh, on that Saturday night.
0: Ten day. Tony, thank you for joining me here on the fight game. Before I let you go, tell everybody what you got going on, what you got coming out.
1: Uh, all right, so you can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at 10 day, Tony. Uh, I'm part of the shipping container here on the Dan Levitard show, metal Ark media DraftKings Kings network. Uh, we're really excited about the stuff we're, we're doing there. Uh, the MMA hangout every pay-per-view fight. It's basically just a watch party. We come in, we hang out, we talk some smack. We watch all the pay-per-view fights uh, that happens. We'll be having the next one uh, for 288, which is a huge card, by the way. We might need to talk about that one a little bit, uh, a little bit later on 288. is going to be massive. Um, so we'll be doing that. And then my MMA substack, the Rear Naked Choke, you can find that at RearNakedChoke.substack.com. Uh, it's something that I like to do just to uh, get my my thoughts out. And uh, when I feel inspired, I like to write a couple of things. So I use that again. That's RearNakedChoke.substack.com.
0: And that was Tony Kaladiou. And when we come back, the general, John McClain, making his fight game debut. Don't go anywhere. This is the fight game on 1230 The Game.
1: Welcome back to The Fight Game with demon Cotton
0: welcome back to the fight game joining me on the phone lines now this has been a long anticipated guest here on the fight game the one and only john mcclain joining us here on the fight game john thank you so much for the honor of joining me on the fight game
2: the honor is all mine and i can tell you it's really nice to be on with a true professional for a change (laughs)
0: <laughs> For those of you who don't know, John McClain joins us each and every Tuesday on Unnecessary Roughness with Q Myers on Raider Nation Radio. And, John, you are one of those guys in the in the industry, in the business that I look up to. So the fact that I'm palling around with John McClain after this interview, this is going to be one of those pinch myself moments.
2: Well, I appreciate you saying that, Devon. I, I, uh, I have never been on a show or anybody asked me to do what you did. And what I've done is I've done some things that are historical and things that uh, you know, happened in my lifetime. And I'm 71 years old, and
0: I think you'll find them very interesting. All right, and everyone, John is a football historian. If you want to know about football, he's got it. So when we were talking about John, what John going to talk about with on the fight game, I said, John, give me your top five fights. I said, I don't care what type of fight. Just give me your top five. John, do you have that top five ready?
2: I sure do, and let me tell you something. This goes back to when I worked at the Waco, Texas Tribune Arrow. Uh, that's where Q came from, uh, the radio in Waco, where he and I did a show for years before he came to Las Vegas. And I was uh, working at uh, the Waco Tribune Arrow. I was uh, a just graduated from Baylor, and I wanted to go to work at Houston Chronicle. I had an opening, and the only opening was covering hockey, and it was the old World Hockey Association, which merged with the NHL. Houston had folded its franchise one year too early, or we would have had an NHL franchise. And you know from being Las Vegas what that means to a city, and. Uh, so the star of that team, the original Houston Aeros, was Gordie Howe, Mr. Hockey, and he was playing with his sons, Mark and Marty Howe, and he came out of retirement with the Detroit Red Wings, where he was in the front office when he was 44. And Back then, athletes were done in their 30s, and for him to come out when he was in his 40s was unheard of, and that story, it, uh, it was bigger than just sports. It was at all the national magazines, television, that Mr. Hockey was coming to Houston. So there was no internet in 1976, so I went to the Waco Public Library to read up on hockey. I'd never even seen a hockey game. <laughs> and to read up about Gordie Howe, who was the star of the team and MVP of the league. And the first thing I saw were pictures in ma- national magazines that I found of Gordie Howe in a fight. In 1959 at Madison Square Garden with the New York Rangers defenseman, Lou Fontenato. And I remembered there was blood everywhere, so I read about it at that time. And then when I got to meet Gordy, I was actually intimidated, but he was such a nice guy, very low-key. He was a lot younger then, in 1959 there were only six teams in the NHL, and they played each other over and over and over. And they had blood feuds. And one of them was Gordie Howe and Lou Fontanato, who was an enforcer who basically got in fights. And uh, they were at the Garden. And uh, back then, there were no helmets, no goalies, wore masks. The rivalries were intensified. And uh, they got in a fight, started off with pushing and shoving, and then they went at it. And Gordy hit Lou Fontenato with a roundhouse haymaker that smashed his face and broke his nose. And Life Magazine, which was the magazine of record back then, they had pictures, and I saw them of Fontenato in the hospital with his face covered, where Gordy had just basically broken his face. And uh, and uh, it's funny because that was the first time media started to publicize fighting in hockey and then in the 60s it became much more popular uh, the NHL expanded one of the reasons teams wanted franchises is they love they love fighting but you can look it up and see those same pictures of Gordie Howe Mr. Hockey rearranging the face of Lou Planteado that was in February 1st 1959 Now, my next one's going to jump jump up Come on to uh, 1962, and I actually saw this. I was uh, 10 years old, and my grandfather always liked to watch Friday Night Fights. That was a big show in the United States back then. TV was in its infancy. Just sports had just started to be televised, became popular in 1960 when the NFL, and when the AFL was created, and the NFL expanded to Dallas and the Cowboys. And there was a welterweight championship fight between Mill Griffith and Benny Kid pere And it was the third time they had fought. And they went at it. And in a fight today that would have been stopped, DeMond, way before, uh, Benny Kid peres head got just outside the ropes. And the ref didn't stop it. And Mill Griffith went over and hit him 27 times in the head before the refs stopped it. And Benny Kid Paray died 10 days later from the injuries sustained in that fight. And that changed a lot about boxing because of what happened, because a lot of people quit watching it. And it also led to the unpopularity of Boxing Weekly on network TV. I believe it was ABC. But uh, Benny Kid Paray was killed. In that fight with Emil Griffith, I've never seen that since on TV. My next one. Hold
0: on, John. Let me was, stop. I want to yeah. I want to talk more about um, this Benny Benny the Kid Parade fight and Mick Griffin. So you were 10 years old when you watched this? I was
2: 10 years old, Mill Griffith and Benny Kid Parade. It was a big deal, welterweight championship, third time they fought. My grandfather was so excited about it because it was on national TV and he loved boxing. And it was a really popular weekly show, the Friday Night Fights. And they went at it, and it was pretty even. And I believe it was in the 10th or 12th round of the 15 uh, fifteen round fight when Pere was hurt. And the referee was asked by the media why he didn't stop it. And one of his explanations was that a lot of times guys who are getting beat will put their head outside the ropes while their body's inside to keep from getting hit or to get rest or let the clock tick down. And in that case, it wasn't the case that they counted the punches. Can you imagine absorbing that many punches when you're defenseless? And like I said, to DeMond, a lot was changed about boxing after that fight and that death
0: 10 days later. Again, we're talking to John McClain from Gallery Sports here on the Fight Game on 1230, the game, to recap the list as so far. Number five, Gordie Howe. Number four, Benny the Kid Beret versus Emil Griffith. What's number three? Number
2: three was, uh, I'll never forget this, because I was on a hockey trip in Canada, and I was in a sports bar restaurant that had a couple of TVs on. It was 1977 and uh, February, I believe, And uh, highlights came on and showed the Houston Rockets playing at the Forum in Los Angeles against the Lakers. And uh, Kermit Washington, a big, powerful power forward for the Lakers, got into some pushing and shoving, fighting over a rebound with Kevin uh, a Rockets forward. And so they looked like they were going to start throwing down. And Rudy Tomjanovich, who later coached the Rockets to two championships. Um, Rudy was at the other end of the court and saw Washington and Cunard still back down there, about to go at it. So he ran down the court to be peacemaker. And Kermit Washington testified later that all he saw was a blur coming up to him, and he instinctively turned and swung at that blur, who happened to be Rudy T., and he fractured his face, knocked him out cold. He's laying there in a pool of blood, and it was called the punch, and it caused Tom Jonovich to miss five months, and he did return. His face was fractured, broken. He had to have multiple surgeries. I remember when he eventually played again, Rudy T. had to wear a mask, and Washington was... Tormented by it, he was suspended for sixty days, twenty-six games. You can imagine how much that caused him. And it was—he uh, was vilified all over the country. No matter how much he tried to explain, I didn't see who it was. All I saw was a blur. Well, and of course, a lot of it was racial. Rudy's was white. Washington was black. It was nineteen seventy-seven And Washington. His career was never the same, and even Rudy talked later in, in his life when he was asked about the, the Kermit Washington talked about how bad he felt for Washington because of the way his chair, his career, and his life changed after that moment that happened in the split second.
0: Wow, that's man, that's insightful. I've seen video of that punch. But I didn't know that Rudy Tom Janovich was even say, hey, I feel bad for Kermit Washington. When you were obviously around in the media at that time, how was it covered down in Houston or in Texas locally?
2: Oh, you can imagine that Kermit Washington was big and bad, should be thrown in jail, put in prison. How could he turn around and hurt Rudy Tom Janovich like that? And uh, the NBA showed no mercy on him. And Washington was he regretted it. Of course he regretted it. He didn't. He wasn't facing the other end of the court thinking, here comes Rudy T, who's not a dirty player. He's not a fighter. All he knew is he was getting into it with Kevin Conard, and all of a sudden out of the corner of his eye, he sees a guy running toward him thinking he's going to hit him, and he turned instinctively, and bam! And it changed their both of those players' lives and their careers.
0: Number two, John McClain. Uh, number two is going to be one
2: that I'm doing these by dates. And this one was, uh, November 19th, 2004. One of the greatest nicknames ever for a fight, uh, the NBA malice at the palace, the palace, uh, where the Pistons played in the suburbs back then, a football stadium. And, uh, It was between the Pacers and the Pistons. There were 45 seconds left. And both those teams had physical, mean, nasty players. And one of the nastiest, Ron Artest, got into it with Ben Wallace, two big men. And uh, so they started fighting. And then uh, it was broken up. And so Artest was lying down on the scores table and a fan who was later identified and charged with assault, and then banned from ever coming back to Pistons games. I can't remember what he threw to mine, but he threw something and hit Artest.
0: It was a beer, our, I think. What was it? A beer. He just threw, threw his blade. a beer. Yeah. Why
2: would you waste a good beer on something like that? So he hit him, and Artest went after him, and then they go in the stands. Artest came down there, and then the, the uh, Pacers went, to help, help uh, our test, and it ended up nine players from both teams were suspended, a total of 146 games, and the price for that fight, the malice at the palace, for those players, 11000000 And million. We're talking about 04 when $11 million meant a whole lot more then than it does today, and I thought it was very interesting. Five fans were charged with assault and banned for life from coming to Pistons home games. And so that one Malice at the Palace. I think they wrote a book on it. You say it, people know what it is instantaneously.
0: Oh, yeah, John, that's one of the first ones on the list that I've got living recollection of because I remember that was an ESPN game. I remember watching that game at my grandma's house and being in shock of, they in the stands, they're fighting, they're fighting the fans. And one of the funniest, because you know it's the story has been told by all the parties involved so many times over. Is Steven Jackson in the locker room saying to Ron Artest, "You think we're going to get in trouble?" <laughs> <laughs> I tell you one like that. It's not on
2: my list. But uh, about going into the stands when I covered the World Hockey Association because uh, they were competing with the NHL. And they could sign underage players. I watched Wayne Gretzky, 17 years old, score 104 points for the Indianapolis Racers. Nobody knows who they were. And then they they sold him to the uh, Edmonton Oilers. And, uh, but back then, they had guys on the teams that did, all they did was fight. And there was a guy from Birmingham, and his name was Gilles News belodeau a defenseman who couldn't even stop without running into the boards or running into somebody. And they got in fights all the time. And the owner of that team was John Bassett. And he was a Canadian from Toronto whose daughter was a professional tennis player. And he created a lot of controversy. He was from Carling Brewery. And uh, he was in the stands one time. And he was mouthing off and players went after him in the stands. They were climbing over the boards. They got knocked the boards down to get in the stands. Players from both teams, fans, were going at it. And it uh, reminded me of the movie Slapshot, which came out in 1977 with uh, Paul Newman, in which they fought constantly. And somebody said, why do they fight all the time? And the guy goes, this is hockey. And I thought back then that uh, watching that fight in the stands. Well, at that time, This is hockey. Now, of course, they don't fight like that anymore because you'd be suspended for a year, maybe put in jail.
0: All right, John McLean from Gallery Sports. Number one on your list. Number
2: one is a, a, a game I covered, 2010, November, and it was at NRG Stadium, a game between the Houston Texans and the Tennessee Titans. Titans, of course, were the former Oilers. They had moved from Houston Nashville in 1997 we got an expansion team back in 2002 they had a pretty good rivalry and one of the reasons at that time was the Texans best player and one of the best receivers in NFL history Andre Johnson uh, because of his rivalry rivalry with cornerback Cortland Finnegan and Finnegan was a guy kind of like a gnat he was pesky irritating annoying he wanted to swat him away. Receivers across the league, DeMond, said he was dirty. He would do things to agitate receivers, get them off their games, put a little more into a hit. And Andre, at this point, had had enough. And what happened, he was on the sideline while the defense was on the field. Gary Kubiak was the head coach. And Gary Kubiak said, Andre's behind him, and he's trying to coach, and he hears Andre go, Coobbs, Coobbs, and finally, what? I'm going to get Finnegan. And and so <laughs> uh, he didn't think anything about it, so they go out there, and on the play before, Finnegan had looked at in front of the Texans bench, had looked over and smiled at him, and when the ball was snapped, he jammed his hand inside Andre Johnson's face mask. Well, that's something you don't do in the NFL. You can do things to players, but you don't do things inside their face mask, even though some of them still do. So on the next play, Johnson jammed his hand inside Finnegan's face mask, ripped off his helmet. Johnson's helmet came off, too, and Johnson started pounding. You know, most most athletes, DeMond, they don't know how to fight. You know, you see NBA players throwing haymakers, They look like they're trying there in a slap fest. But Andre Johnson, who grew up in in Miami, it was obvious to watch him plant his feet, put his left fist up for protection, and use that right fist to bam, 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 pound Cordland Finnegan. And there was a great picture taken by the Houston Chronicle of, of Finnegan on the ground, Johnson standing over him with his with his left foot, left hand, fist down, and his right hand cocked like he was going to hit him again. Of course, both of them got kicked out. And Andre Johnson (laughs) said he got so many calls, text messages, emails sent to him from other receivers around the NFL saying it's about time somebody did that to that so-and-so. You know what? And when Cortland Tinnigan retired, He couldn't resist taking another shot at Andre Johnson, talking about going to an alley with him and seeing who came out. And I'm thinking that's big talk for a little guy who knows he never has to face a guy like Andre Johnson again.
0: John, I love that that's the last fight on your list because I remember that vividly, being a Titans fan. And Andre Johnson, one of those guys respected around the league, all-time great. So it's like, ah, you don't want to root against Andre Johnson, but that's a guy on my team and even I was rooting for Andre Johnson. Like, hey man, he did have it coming.
2: You know, he's a class guy. He never got in a fight, again, in his 13-year career. Had a cup of coffee with the Titans. When he spent his, he played 13 years last two with Titans and calls, nobody remembers it. And he never got in another fight. And I'm pretty sure that's because no cornerbacks jammed their hand inside his face mask to test him.
0: Yeah, it's not as wise moving. He is also, for those of you who do who do not know, Andre Johnson, he is like the, you know, the definition of what a football player looks like. When people say, Oh, he's a football player, he looks like that, chiseled out of stone. What was he? Six three, six two, two thirty. He was 6'3",
2: 230, six three two thirty. When he came out of Miami in two thousand two at the combine, he ran a four three eight, and the Texans made him the second overall, uh, third overall pick in the draft.
0: Wow! All right, John McClain, Before I let you go, Gallery Sports Media, tell us what you guys got coming up. What you got going on? Well, I'm glad you asked. I just post my fifth
2: mock draft on GallerySports.com. There's no paywall, and uh, I try to change things around because my official one. Mine is the week before the uh, draft, but I do them every week. I'll have seven. I try to keep fans interested. One thing I'm sure is throwing Texans fans for a loop with the second overall pick. I've had them taking a quarterback, either Bryce Young or CJ Stroud every week, but I switched to Alabama linebacker, Will Anderson Jr. And with their 12th pick in the first round, I haven't taken Tennessee quarterback and then the hooker and, uh, I also have another column up about uh, the, the draft, which is just such a great time of the year. And uh, I want to reiterate again how much I love coming on with you and Q every Thursday. And I also uh, spent uh, five days in Las Vegas at the NCAA first round of the tournament. I had a blast. Can't wait to come back. I love Las Vegas and not just. Because it's Sin City, I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> but just because of the great sports books, hotels, people, gambling, restaurants, shows, everything about it, I told my wife, and she agreed, if we weren't going to live in Houston and we could go anywhere we want, I said, and she agreed. Las Vegas would be at the top of our list, long as we weren't living on Q Street, of
0: course. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live anywhere else either, John. I love it here in Vegas. Thank you so much for joining me on The Fight Game. This has been a blast.
2: DeMond, it's my pleasure.
0: Anytime. Thank you very much for having me. And that was the great John McClain joining us here on The Fight Game. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Shane Burgos ahead of PFL 3, as this is going to be his first fight since jumping over from the UFC to PFL We'll talk to Shane about all that and more here on The Fight Game on 1230 The Game.
3: Welcome back to The Fight Game.
0: Nothing but illustrious guests here on The Fight Game, and I'm pleased to introduce my next guest. And you can check him out this Friday at PFL3 at the Virgin Hotel and Theaters. It's one of the best places to watch fights in all of Las Vegas. Hurricane Shane Burgos, how are you doing today?
3: I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on.
0: Hey, man, so I've got to ask you, let's jump up to 155. What went into this decision? Is it the fact that the PFL with the season, or is it just right for your body at this time?
3: Both. You, you hit it up, hit it up, nail the head there, both. Um, the season format of having to do uh, four fights back-to-back in eight months, that's definitely going to be rough for me to do at 45. So, you know, what, let me uh, make this camp and, and every camp going forward from here on more performance-based instead of scale-based. Like, my last couple fights at 45, the last three, four weeks, it's just all about making weight. And now it's been like a huge way up my shoulders just focusing on how I feel in sparring, how I feel in my grappling rounds, how I feel every day back at home compared to 45 where it's just like I'm trailing ass just to get to the training session.
0: And then with you, I mean, you are, you're a bit of a taller guy, so it's not going to be that you're at a size disadvantage at 55, but do you feel like you're going to have a little bit more power at 55?
3: Exactly, 100%. More power, more cardio, more speed. I think I'm a, it's the best I've ever felt I, probably ever, honestly, and definitely in a long time. I, at 45, I can never make 45 on short notice, so. Back when I was in the UFC, now I'm in the PFI it, it is relatively short notice because right after this fight I'm fighting again in June so to do back to back i I had to do 55 my body was asking me for it it was, it was basically begging me for it
0: <laughs> and then but but how excited are you for this PFL format you mentioned going to have to fight in June are you prepared for that I know you, you know you got to fight when the fight's there but are you ready for that I'll say that competition aspect of it of being ready on such short notice yeah yes
3: uh, yeah I, I already had that in my head that um, that i'm doing it i mean so I already started mentally preparing for it so, uh, I, so don't get me wrong it's still going to be hard it's going to be a mentally and physically grueling test but i'm, I'm excited for it I, I pride myself in my mental toughness and my mental fortitude so i think i'm gonna i'm gonna all
0: go right again we're talking to hurricane shane burgos here on the fight game i've got to ask you first out of the gate the main event taking on the champ i'm gonna call him the champ because he's the defending champ olivia yep. mercier so how does that feel getting the champ first right out of the gate
3: yeah, right off the back. Give, give me the guy that won the whole thing, when I'm fresh and I'm ready to go. Um, yeah, it, if, if I had to pick, that's, that's who I would pick, honestly. It makes the most sense to me. Uh, no complaints on this side.
0: And then, no matter how this fight goes, where, depending on how you do in the point system, you could see him later on. So are you thinking about that, where even if you do beat him, that you'll already have him scouted for if you do see him later on?
3: Yeah, I did think about that, too. Like You saw that with uh, Anthony Pettis and Stevie Ray. They ended up fighting basically back-to-back, almost like one fight in between. So yeah, it's definitely a, po- a possibility for a rematch down the line. So that's the, the kind of the cool thing about it. You don't, you can't close the door on any opponent. Like once it's done, it's not necessarily done.
0: And something else I wanted to ask you about, and you can follow him on Instagram at Hurricane Shane underscore the Entrance Music. Somebody can pick out your walkout song. Have you determined what that walkout song is going to be yet?
3: No, I, I gave them four options, and I'm still waiting on them to. to get the votes in and, and, and make the decision, or, I mean, the fans make the decision.
0: Okay, yeah, so you did give them an option. So it is going to be something yep. at least that you're going to be comfortable walking yeah, out with. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Everyone was so confused. Everyone was like, you're just going to let them pick random songs? I they like, know, guys, no, no, no. I've given four options that I'm cool with, and then they can pick from those.
0: And then with this training camp, I want to get back to that, because I'm always curious with fighters, when he comes, you said, hey, you were dragging when you were fighting at 45, and how this has been. Has this been an easier camp for you, or what's been that challenge of, hey, you're fighting at a weight class that you haven't fought at yet. Have you switched anything up in camp? Yeah, definitely
3: switched some things up. Uh, It's the hardest camp I've ever had, but it's been also, on the other hand, the best camp I've ever had, because I've been able to eat so much more than I I was (laughs) able to eat at 45, so... As hard and as grueling as the training was, it was so much more enjoyable to, to actually go through it because I'm not just sitting there starving while I'm torturing my body to do the training session. So it's been huge. I wish I would have did this a little bit earlier, honestly, but everything happens for a reason, and it's led me here, so I'm excited to make my uh, 165 debut Friday.
0: And then something that I'm always curious about when I talk to fighters from the PFL is the, is the pay. I mean, you're fighting for that million dollars at the end of the season. So what is that like, just that fighter equity, that pay that you get in the PFL? Because I know from the outside looking in, it's, hey, this guy, you were fighting in the UFC. Why would you, cho- why would you personally, you chose to left and go to the PFL? But how much does that pay mean to you when it comes to getting paid what you're worth?
3: Yeah, 100%. Financial stability and security, is, is, it means the world to me. I got a family. I got two kids, a wife. I got another daughter on the way. When I have a full blown, freaking, full blown house of girls at my, at my house. So, uh, yeah, that financial security meant the world to me. That was a, a huge, it was probably the number one, number one factor when it comes to me leaving the UFC and, and signing with the PFL.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm glad you said that because that's always something that I'm always curious about with fighters. I mean, you mentioned the family and the financial security. You said it better than I could have there because it is important for you as a fighter. Where it's not, you know, not trying to disparage the UFC at all, but I know that that is one of those things where fighters want to get paid that they're worth. You don't have to speak on it for the UFC side of it, but have you felt that you've been treated and compensated in the PFL, even though you haven't had that first fight yet?
3: I've been treated and compensated beautifully. I have zero complaints when it comes to that. Like. I remember when I first made the decision, I was a little bit nervous still that, that I made that. I, mm-hmm. I left UFC. I, was, I, was, I didn't know how it was going to go. And like two weeks in, I was like, dude, this was the right decision. hundred percent. I have zero regrets. Uh, if I could re- redo it, I would do it exactly the same way. Like it, 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 It's, like it's going to be a beautiful story when, when it's all said and done, too. It, it's been awesome.
0: Again, we're talking to Hurricane Shane Burgos here on the fight game. So with the PFL, the point system, how much has that been a factor in camp or with your coaches thinking about, hey, do you want that that, uh, that fast six and how are you going to prepare? Does that change how you look going into a fight?
3: No, I'm not putting too much stock into that. It doesn't matter what the points are. If there were no points, I'm still going for the first round finish. Every fighter, is. if they say they're not, they're kind of lying. I don't know who. Not trying to get in and get out as quick as possible. And aside from the points, you want to be perhaps going into your second fight. So the, the, the points, I guess, they add a little incentive. I'm trying to get in and get out no matter what.
0: And then with you know that second fight, are you already looking at the other side of the bracket? Are you thinking about that matchup, or you got to take it one fight ahead? You can't get greedy and try to look ahead.
3: No, yeah, yeah, it's one fight at a time. I'm focused strictly on this guy. It'd be it'd be it'd be naive and ignorant for me to look, overlook the guy that just won the entire season. So my focus is solely on OAM.
0: And then so with him coming up, I know that he is the champ, the defending champ. What are some of those challenges or the aspects of his game that you've been working on that you've got to watch out for in the octagon?
3: Yeah, so he's good. He's, got, he's, he's a good lefty. Um, that, that, that's always an interesting fight against And He's got good grappling, pretty good wrestling. Um, striking's definitely gotten a lot better, I'd say. But um, I'm not really putting too much stock into him. I'm really more so focused on what I'm going to do, what my game plan is.
0: All right, Hurricane Shane, before I let you go, is there anything else that you want to let the fans know ahead of this Friday night for PFL 3?
3: If you guys are in Vegas, get your tickets before they sell out. It's going to be a freaking banger. The card is stacked from top to bottom. Do not miss it. It's going to be violence from the first bell to the last bell like
0: every single Hurricane Shane fight. Thank you so much for joining me here on the fight game. All right, brother. How it going? Thank you. Again, thank you to Shane Burgles for joining me here on the fight game. Thank you to the PFL for providing their fighters to come on the fight game. You don't want to miss it. PFL 3 this Friday tomorrow down at the Virgin Theaters love that spot a great place to watch fights as I always say has that old school feel to it and I want to say thank you to Tony Kaladiou for joining me here on the show today you can check him out on Twitter at 10 Day Tony Levitard and Friends Network they've got so much going on part of DraftKings they got all the stuff he got all those plugs in when he was on the show and the general the biggest of thank yous to John McClain for joining me on the fight game from Gallery Sports an honor and a pleasure That John McClane wants to be on my show, a real pinch-myself moment. This has been The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Stay safe and protect yourself at all times, everybody.